Hi, and welcome to this latest episode of SEPADPOD, the Sectarianism Proxies and Desectarianization podcast based at Lancaster University. Today I'm joined by someone whose work has been a real inspiration over the, the past decade or so, I guess. It's someone who's who's had a real impact on, on the international relations of the Middle East, on understanding Gulf politics. Um, I'm, I'm really excited that that Toby Matisson is, is joining us today. Toby is the Sir Adam Roberts Senior Research Fellow in the International Relations of the Middle East at the Middle East Centre at St. Anthony's College at the University of Oxford. Toby, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me, Simon, and thanks for the flattery. Oh, not at all. I, I stand by every word that I said. It's been been a real sort of pleasure getting to know you over the past couple of years after after spending so long reading your work. So, Toby, can you tell us a bit about how you got interested in, in the Middle East and the Gulf and, and the issues that you explore, please? Well, I suppose I became interested in the region after 9-11 and the Iraq war and all that attention that uh, was focused on it and all these stereotypes about um, bad Muslims, bad Arabs and so on that were, were out there. And I just wanted to see for myself whether that was true or whether it wasn't true. It sounded like it couldn't be true. And so I started doing Arabic and, and, and spent some time in the region doing Arabic, um, uh, including in Syria. And uh, from there, as most Arabic students, went over to Beirut and, and spent quite a few, t- you know, some time there. And um, I suppose these experiences kind of got me hooked and 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 um, showed me that well these are very complex and interesting societies and I'd like to um, uh, study them a bit more and then I did do as a you know as an undergraduate uh, I chose a second language and that was uh, Farsi and so I did uh, spend some time in Iran um, at the university studying Persian and um, I, I vividly remember on the campus of Isfahan University, uh, I, I just arrived and, and it was just a time of the um, Al-Askari bombing in Iraq. So so the big uh, bombing of, of, the, of the shrine yeah. of, of one of the Shia imams uh, that kind of set off the civil war in Iraq. And, and in Iran on the campus, there were big posters all about and, and events. And, and one could really sense that some, somehow something had shifted, something had had uh, you know gotten more serious than perhaps it had previously been, and I suppose from then on everything just kind of happened. But I mean, this this outset of 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 me doing my language studies and my first travels in the region, I suppose that that's what really got me interested, and then you know showed me that um, well the the so-called Sunni-Shi rivalry or or the politicization of these sectarian identities is uh, is something with, with very real consequences. Sure, and that's, it's a fascinating way into it. So just to confirm, your, your undergraduate studies were, were languages rather than anything else? Were... Well, I mean, it was Oriental studies. And, sure. Uh, I mean, it, you know, it was in the yeah. German context, so it wasn't called that. But yeah, sure. you know, as what, what uh, yeah, with, with, with some history and, and, and politics um, associated with that. But yeah, I did the languages um, pretty seriously first. And that, I think that's that's a really interesting way of doing it because compared with with everyone else that I've spoken to, coming at it from a sort of a Western context or a non-Arabic or non-Persian speaking um, scholars, they delved into the intellectual political side of things first and then topped it up with the the languages as as 
as did I. So it's interesting to hear you going at it sort of quite seriously from the other side, if you will. Yes, but I mean, all the students that do undergraduate um, Middle Eastern studies nowadays, they also have to do a language. So it's it's not a I mean, it's not that unusual uh, a path um, sure. uh, to go about. I mean, I suppose initially it was the intellectual curiosity about what was actually going on um, in the region uh, and so on and so forth. But I do think that uh, particularly um, exposure to the region and and serious study of the language, I suppose also of the dialects, um, is, a, is a really a necessity. And, and now our students, I mean, we tell them very much that this is the way forward and <laughs> yeah. not to, yeah. Yeah, of course. So, so then you, you spent the time in the region. You you got really immersed in the 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 intricacies of, of politics across the region, and then you you went and, and did a PhD. Yes, I, I came to SOAS to do my MA, um, um, Middle East politics uh, focus, and uh, I suppose I was interested in, in in the issue of sectarian politics, but um, I didn't want to write yet another book on Lebanon, for example, or <laughs> yeah. Hezbollah, and, 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 and um, so I, I thought about, well, what, what could be a, 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 an area to study these questions that, that had perhaps not been studied that much, and, um, and so as, um, I remember meeting Nelida Fukaro, who, you know, was yeah. one of the courses I, I, I took was Middle East History with her, and she was just finishing her book on Bahrain. Amazing. Um, on the you know on the on the yeah. city state of Bahrain, and there was a lot of you know about twentieth century history and and about what had affected communal relations in Bahrain and so on. And um, so um, up until that point, I'd, I'd hardly ever heard much about the Gulf, and and particularly not about um, you know the minority politics there. Um, and uh, so I suppose it was from there that I I, I then decided to look at. The case of Saudi Arabia and, and to a lesser extent Bahrain, and look at the Shi communities in those two countries, um, and then eventually really focused on Saudi Arabia because, while obviously it's a very difficult case to study, it it it, it had really not been um, studied before. Um, just as I was starting my PhD, then this other book came out, Fuad Ibrahim, an old veteran Saudi yeah. Shi opposition activist who'd also done his PhD at SOAS. His book had, you know, was just coming out, um, which was a bit of a challenge, but then it, it proved to be a really good um, kind of backbone on which to build my uh, work. And um, so then, you know, this was, you know, mine became the, well, the second book on, on the Shi community in, in Saudi Arabia. Um, and um, yes, well, that's that's how it happened. Fantastic. And it, it really is, I think, a, an excellent book for anyone wanting to look at the, the Shia politics or Shia politics in Saudi Arabia and Shia communities in Saudi Arabia. It's, it's I think, the go-to, um, yeah, the go-to work to really get a handle on, on what's happening. And, it's, and it, it's not a cheery read, of course, but it's, it's certainly no. a, a fascinating, um, illuminating text, if you will. So... What was it? Well, that, it's very academic. Well, <laughs> it is, but some might say that academic which work can I, also be illuminating. Yes. Which is why I wrote this other book, um, which is more accessible. So sure. What happened is that at some point, I suppose the last year of my PhD, well, yeah, the, the, the last year of my PhD was supposed to have been 2011. And as yeah. of us who went through that, I mean, perhaps you too, um, everyone who was still trying to write their PhDs at the, you know, when the Arab Spring started was somehow feeling a little bit um, 
well bewildered by well shall I try to incorporate all of that yeah or, exactly you know, how does it affect my my uh, you know my understanding of things I, I remember I had some some friends who, who were also doing PhDs at those who who wants to look at some of the old ruling elites of, of some of the countries that were overthrown and basically right. their PhD subjects had just virtually overnight evaporated. Yeah. So, I mean, I was lucky I wasn't that affected. I mean, the subject was still relevant, but at the same time, there were massive uh, protests starting in Bahrain, especially, and then in the Eastern province. And so I, uh, I, I followed that very closely and also went to Bahrain um, immediately. And I suppose, well, in the book, the PhD didn't really get that much affected by it. In, the, in this book, The Other Saudis, I did a chapter on the protests, but then I, I wrote this other book, Sectarian Gulf, which I actually published first before the other the PhD book. And that is more, it, it, it's also written in a bit more accessible style. Um, it's it's a partly participant observation and, and sure. so on. And was that the plan, to write something that was, was accessible and could be read by a wider audience? Well, I mean, it, 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 it happened. I, I only started writing this, I suppose, in the middle of 2012, so quite a bit removed from the events, I suppose, at a time when, when these protests were largely repressed. Yeah. So um, mainly because I, I suppose I felt that the story hadn't really been told in depth, the story of the... Bahrain uprising in particular, but also the story of Kuwait and and the eastern province, and because um, uh, well, I just felt like there was a there was a coherent book there about uh, the ways in which sectarian identity was mobilized as a well, in some ways as a as a protest as a force of protest, but then particularly also as a way of divide uh, uh, dividing yeah. and ruling population. So Bahrain was, was just so clear in, in the ways in which this was done. And um, despite the fact that it's a very small country, I suppose it had so much bigger significance geopolitically and, and, and symbolically. Um, yeah. And, um, yeah. And intellectually as well, I guess there's a sense that you were you were in some ways ahead of the curve of this this so-called sectarianization thesis and the sort of the politicization and and mobilization of, of sect-based identities for political ends in in what you were doing in in the Bahrain book in the sectarian Gulf. Well, Simon, now you're really out for, <laughs> and, uh, uh, which of course will get anyone very far. I mean, uh, I certainly but, hope so. Well, I mean, I, I mean, first these things happened in whatever the real world. Uh, uh, I mean, Bahrain and many other contexts had had uh, such instrumentalization of sectarian identity, uh, had experienced that for a long time. But in in these in, in in 2011, it just became so obvious, and it was done on such a massive scale that I suppose you'd have to be really quite blind not to not to yeah. see that. But I suppose I did try to put it in a cohesive, fairly cohesive um, uh, uh, narrative. And, um, and uh, yeah, so the sectarianization, the, the idea of a, of a process that, um, right, that, that identities are not fixed, that um, they can be activated through a process, through, uh, well, what, what then became called sectarianization, um, and that they can also become less important uh, at other points in time. That is something that, um, I suppose, in the general literature on identity, in the general literature on 
confessional confessionalization also in the European in European history and so it was very much there but it wasn't something that perhaps in in modern Middle East politics or modern Middle East history had been so um, you know so present and so I think that's the real contribution of this whole of this book and, and of the general debate is that we look at it uh, that we look at sectarian identity we take it seriously but we also look at the way in, in which it's constructed sure and I I think it, it's fascinating. It, it really is uh, an insightful and uh, a very rich account of, of what happened in in the uh, in the Gulf. And for those of us who were preparing for a podcast with you, Toby, uh, we might have spotted some photographs of you from Manama at that time. <laughs> and it just it made me think. What what recollections do you have of of your time in in Bahrain in twenty eleven? Well, I did have a lot of hair on those uh, photographs. Well, so did I in 2011, but... Uh... No, I mean, uh, well, I have very good memories. It sure. Was very, it was a very exciting time, but it was also, I mean, it was also quite scary because over the course of a few days, obviously, things shifted from, from a dramatic uh, outburst of popular, I don't know, mobilization and then total crackdown and then mass protests again and um, that were then for like about a month had taken over this square and then complete repression again so complete basically military style lockdown of the island and and in some ways that's the situation that that the island has been in ever since but um, again that is yeah i mean most of the arab countries have experienced some form or another of of this dynamic since 2011 and and this year we've seen that some of those countries that had not experienced it um, can also be you know scenes of, of mass mobilizations uh, Algeria um, Sudan uh, countries that we had used as the you know the counterexamples so um, I think it's not necessarily unique uh, to Bahrain, um, uh, and uh, the devastation has obviously been even greater in, in some other contexts, uh, such as Syria. Yeah, and I, I think it's interesting you point that out. I'd like to, to come back to that in a, in a little bit, if I may. Just for, for people who've not read your um, your PhD thesis, the, the Other Saudis, can you tell us a little bit about what you were trying to do in that and, and why you went in the directions that you did, please? Well, I was basically trying to come to terms with um, the, the the fact, you know, how a, a Middle Eastern state uh, engages with a, a population group that, um, on an ideological level, it basically cannot agree with, but for practical reasons has to find a way of of living alongside um, and the same goes so there were two levels I suppose the one was the level of the state the other was the level of, of the community and, and what the dynamics within that community were and um, this community were um, Shi Muslims who live in the eastern province particularly in Al-Aqsa Oasis and Katif port town and uh, these areas had been inhabited by Shi Muslims for centuries, so before the Saudi state was established and had very long intellectual traditions um, uh, and also business networks and, and, and kind of long-standing social structures that were deeply affected by the 20th century, first by the conquest you know, of the eastern province by the Saudi uh, Wahhabi alliance, alliance and then by the whole transformation of the province 
this is where all the oil industry is located. Um, it became this, you know, the place where new cities were founded, where new forms of popular politics were tried out, uh, labor movements, and so on and so forth, which actually were often cross-sectarian. So in the 50s and 60s, it was interesting to see that these members of these Shi communities uh, went to work in the oil industry and they solidarized themselves with other Saudis or other Arabs who, who come to work in the oil industry. But by the 1970s, and then particularly after 1979, the kind of international dimension of, of uh, Sunni-Shi relations, the Iranian revolution, the Iran-Iraq war, um, meant that, that the, the, the Shi aspect of their identity became stronger both um, it was spurred both by the activities of, of some Shia Islamist movements amongst this community, but also by the state who basically, you know, started to see the Shia even more as a security threat than before and, and basically um, really put the whole province under kind of lockdown and, and instituted very harsh policies um, towards them. So I suppose a kind of, you know, a two-sided phenomenon. Um, uh, and I also obviously tried to look at the international context and how that uh, affected um, these relations between the Shi's community and the state. It's it's really fascinating here when you, you, you talk about it and makes me want to go and reread it. But it also want, makes me want to, to look at the the stuff that you've written around that, sort of the the intellectual histories that that you did with regard to the um, sort of the clerical networks, um, the, um, the the sort of the protest movements, and the sort of the historiographies, the the historians, and and the the pieces like that, you've really fleshed out not just the political side of things, but the intellectual side as well. And I think it's it's really fascinating what you're, you're doing, essentially creating a, a body of knowledge, if you will. But, Toby, can you tell us a bit about what the cold, where the Cold War fits into all of this then? Well, the Cold War is something I've started to work on in the last couple of years uh, a bit more. The Cold War... Um, doesn't necessarily directly impact so much on, on the sectarian identity dimension. But the Cold War is is the context in which this very strong relationship between Saudi Arabia and the United States has to be seen, uh, which which survives until today in a, in a very strong uh, way. In some ways, uh, President Trump and MBS have kind of Revived this old school Cold War relationship, um, you know, where where the two sides do not criticize each other's policies, um, um, you know, almost at at all. And um, so, uh, obviously, initially, Iran under the Shah was this other big Cold War ally of the United States, but in '79, that all fell apart. And so, um, the U.S. obviously builds this grand coalition um, to both fight the Soviet Union in Afghanistan, but also to contain Iran and the Iranian revolution. And it is in this context that Saudi Arabia becomes even more important than it had previously been. And it's in this context that the kind of Saudi, um, the Saudi view of Islam and also the strong anti-Shiism that uh, exists within the Wahhabi and, and general Saudi tradition um, of, of religious practice and scholarship really becomes globalized. So um, that is where, where this is very important for our story. So it's after 1979 that a lot of the, the classics, if you like, of anti-Shi polemics 
uh, get um, published first in Arabic and then translated into all languages that matter uh, for Muslims. So you have, and this is done by either by directly by Saudi scholars or by Saudi financed institutions or by scholars based in Saudi Arabia. So key works get published in Urdu, in Malay, in uh, Bahasa, Indonesia, and, and so on and so forth. So, so core narratives of anti-Shiism get spread around the Islamic world um, into contexts that previously had almost no knowledge of what Shiism was. So, so Malaysia uh, afterwards becomes the only country where Shiism is officially banned. It's it's more banned than in Saudi Arabia, despite the fact right. that there are very few Shia and it's obviously very far away from from Iran or from the core, you know, conflicts of the Middle East. Sure. And it, it sounds like that you're you're sort of you're pushing the boundaries of what you've done before here. And I know that you're you're under under constraints as to what you can talk about. But perhaps you might want to whet the appetite of of people listening. Is there perhaps a new book in the pipeline? Oh well, there are no constraints. But yes, I'm 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 writing a kind of history of Sunni Shi relations that is more global and that is longer in time. And um, I suppose uh, the book is trying to, the approach that I've tested in a number of these contexts is, is trying to apply that to a broader uh, set of, of, of issues and, uh, and events. And uh, it doesn't argue that, um, you know, there was like one, there was a hostility, you know, since the death of the prophet between a fixed Sunni community and between a fixed Shi community, quite to the contrary. It um, it tries to problematize this idea, but it tries to show at which point, you know, Sunni and Shi uh, communities uh, and and, and religious identities started to become clearer and um, uh, at which point they became associated with political projects, with new dynasties that converted, you know, whole countries that had previously been, you know, of the other confession to a new confession. And, um, uh, and and how they use this also in their foreign policy. And, uh, and you know, the, the longer I look at this and the closer I look at it, I mean, the more interesting um, uh, developments uh, one finds and, and, and the further back in history one can also go. I, I'm sure, and I'm, I'm somewhat reluctant to ask the question, but the curiosity in me is, is going to make me. When can we expect this or when should we look out for this this new book? Well, I mean, I'm trying to finish it, um, uh, but uh, it will be it will be a while. Perhaps uh, next year, inshallah. Inshallah. Instead, you get uh, involved in doing pesky podcasts. So I should apologise for for taking up your precious time. But no, Toby, thank you, Simon. It's I've been got a pleasure um, to talk to you. Yeah, I just want to say thank you so much. It's been it's been wonderful to talk through um, what you've been doing, and uh, I look forward to to hearing more about the book in person, and uh, yeah, to to keeping a close eye on what you're doing in the coming months and years thank you so thank you toby until next time thanks simon